Paul there again. It is by way of uh, proving what he has said through the Old Testament scriptures that the author is doing here. So we want to look at this in a lot more detail tonight. Um, Let me begin with a quote. Uh, Angels are beings of light from the seventh dimension and higher. The angelic realms come from the heart of God and do not have free will as we do. Their will is the divine will. We cannot usually see or hear them because they vibrate at a frequency that is beyond our visual and auditory range. Certain people can connect with them because they are psychic and can tune into angelic wave band. Others have to learn to do this. In New Light on Angels, that's a book, and Angel Inspiration, another book, I teach people how to attune to angels. And the Angel Correspondence Course also helps you to link into angelic realms. The Keys to the Universe offers much more advanced information and working with this book. Uh, this book automatically raises your frequency so that you can connect with higher frequency beings. So says the woman called Diana Cooper at dianacooper.com. And a whole host of other people and other books. It might surprise you that angels still attract a lot of attention in our skeptical, scientific world. How many people, for example, have you heard talking about guardian angels? Indeed, there's any amount of rubbish uh, on the bookstalls and the bookshops through self-help and spiritualist books uh, on the market that you can buy and you can get in tune with if you so desire. But the Bible has a very different take on angels. And in the first two chapters of Hebrews, we see the uh, topic of angels coming up. um, And the author has a lot to say about it. But his interest is not so much in the function or existence of angels, which he presupposes, but rather in the relationship between the angels and Jesus. Now, as I said last week, in Jewish theology and teaching, angels formed a very special, very special place. They were created beings who were messengers from God. Angels came up, uh, think of the stories of Abraham uh, or of Daniel. Uh, angels are also mentioned during Jesus' own earthly ministry. Angels were said to have delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were involved in the spiritual conflict in the unseen world. But the big question on the mind of the author to the Hebrews is this. If angels are special messengers from God, and if they are so important, how then do they compare to God's final message in the Son? And the answer he gives is an emphatic one. The Son is better than the angels in his revelation of the Father and his revealing of God. It's not that the message given by angels was wrong or bad or in any way. Rather, it's the case that God has spoken through the Son in a supreme way. In a way that no angel could ever match. And so in verses 4 to 14 of Hebrews 1, the author sets about proving that the Son is superior to the angels. He does this by quoting the very Old Testament that speaks about those angels and from which the Jews understood their theology of angels and which the primarily Jewish audience or Jewish Jewish Christian audience to to which uh, the author was writing to would have understood. 
And in so doing, the author to the Hebrews shows us very, something very, very important about the nature of the Jewish scriptures or our Old Testament scriptures. That is that they point and teach us about Jesus. They aren't all just about Israel and the law and the Old Covenant. Rather, they show us through these things, yes, they tell us about the Son. The Son whom God now speaks through and who, how he rules his people. So Hebrews has a lot to teach us about the way we as Christians are to understand and approach the Old Testament. The gospel is in the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus in Luke uh, 24, when Jesus was walking with the two disciples, he explains to them from the scriptures, all the scriptures there being the Old, Old Testament, all concerning himself. So he is in there. So the author to the Hebrews shows us how this takes place. He takes Old Testament passages, primarily here from the Psalms, and he interprets them then in the light of God's final revelation, his final speaking to us through the Son. And in so doing, uh, he shows us that Jesus is not a spiritual being, like the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, a spirit person. He's not just a higher being of some other description, but rather Jesus is the unique Son of the Father, the Messianic heir, who is higher than angels because he is the heir of the whole universe. So the author begins uh, in verse 5 with a rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did God ever say? The answer, of course, is that God has never said to any of the angels anything like he has said to and about the Son. The first reference that the author makes in verse 5 is uh, from uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. Now, of course, Psalm 2 uh, was widely understood as being a messianic psalm, both by uh, Jews and by the early Christians. We find the early Christian church used it extensively uh, in the book of Acts when they were seeking to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Psalm 2 uh, of itself may have been used in coronation ceremonies for Israelite kings, kings in the line of David. The psalm speaks of uh, the rebellious nations and their rulers and kings who are now rebelling against God and his anointed one. But this rebellion will come to nothing because the one in heaven laughs and what does he do? He has appointed and enthroned his king on Zion, his holy hill. And then in the next verses of the psalm, we have this dialogue that the king, where the king says that God has said to him, you are my son. This was the Israelite king. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, of course, being originally addressed to Israelite kings, how can we understand that? In what sense here can we understand that the king, an Israelite king, was God's son? Again, it comes back to the fact that the king, the king of God's people, um, it was the person whom, to whom God would show his favor and add his blessing. The king was, in fact, God's appointed ruler over Israel, yes. But in another sense, he was the king over all kings. He was understood to be God's vice-regent over God's kingdom. 
Therefore, the king became the son when he was enthroned in the sense that he was heir over that kingdom. So the king ruled then with God's authority over God's people. So when the gospel writers, for example, Matthew, traces the line of Jesus back to King David, you look at Matthew chapter 1, what they are claiming about Jesus is that he is the one who rules with God's authority over God's kingdom, or as Hebrews says, he is the son. But even more than that, if we, if we look at Luke's uh, gene- genealogy of Jesus, we find there that Luke traces uh, the line right back to Adam. And it's interesting, he calls Adam, at the very end of that genealogy in Luke chapter 3, he calls Adam son of God. In what sense was Adam son of God? In the same way as the Israelite king, Adam was the vice-regent over God's kingdom. He ruled over God's world under God's authority and with God's authority. So when the author here uses Psalm 2 and quotes verse 7, what he, is, what he sees, he sees Jesus here, the Son, or he sees Jesus as being the Son through whom the Father speaks. He is actually referring to the fact that Jesus is the Messianic heir. He is the one who sits on the throne of David, rules over all of God's creation as Adam himself did. But this Jesus is a second Adam. And that, will, that theme will uh, come out again and again in Hebrews as we move on. So as a messianic heir, as the son, Jesus has a unique relationship with the father. God is his father and he is heir and Messiah is the son who rules over God's kingdom with the father's blessing, exercising the father's authority. So when the psalm says today, I have become your father, or today I have begotten you, it's in our translation. When is this, when was this to happen? When did it happen? When was Jesus declared to be the son? Well, like we saw last week, the context of these verses is to do with Jesus' enthronement. So here we have in this psalm the fact that it was after his death and resurrection when he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. That was when Jesus was declared or was enthroned as ruler over all things, when he was set up at the highest possible place. Now that doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is the pre-existent son. We know that. But his role as being the messianic heir and son is openly declared when he is exalted, when he is given that name which is above every name. He sits on the very throne of God, ruling over all things. David, of course, was said to be a man after God's own heart, uh, in the sense that he exercises his authority in the way that God himself did, with justice, with righteousness. But we find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus who is the messianic heir, who is also the pre-existent son, who rules as himself, as God, over all that he has made, as the man who is the divine image bearer. So clearly then, God has never spoken to any angel in this way. 
And so Jesus is superior to the angels precisely because he is the son, the messianic heir, with authority over all creation, including the angels. The next quote the author uses is then from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14. Um, verse 14. There again, the same theme comes up as in Psalm 2, the father's relationship with the son. These two quotes, I guess, should be really be taken together. In 2 Samuel 7, what you have is uh, King David is considering himself and how he uh, dwells in a house of cedar, and yet the Lord only dwells in a tent. Uh, that is, the, of course, the tabernacle, because the temple wasn't built at this point. And David wants now to build a house for God in Jerusalem. And he explains this to the prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells him, okay, do what you want. But then God speaks through the prophet Nathan to David again, and he tells him, don't build this house. Don't build a house for me. Rather, in fact, I will build a house for you, says God. And, and by house, the Lord is really speaking about a dynasty. For the Lord tells David that he, would, he, will, uh, he, will be, he will have a son, and that son who comes from his own line will build that temple, will build God's house. And very specifically, the Lord says of this son that he will come from David's line, he will establish uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, and then again we see these words, I will be his father and he will be my son. And critically, the Lord makes it plain, David's house and kingdom shall endure forever. His throne would have no end. Now again, this specifically, of course, referred to King Solomon, David's son. He was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem, and his throne was, in fact, established. The kingdom was at its probably at its biggest and most splendid during Solomon's reign he, as he was king of Israel. So in a sense, there is a, is a partial fulfillment here of, in the reign of Solomon of all that God says to David. But then you look very carefully at all, at all the promises that uh, God makes to David in this passage in, in 2 Samuel 7, and you find that if what God says is correct, if David's house and his throne are going to last forever, then there, there are only two possible ways in which that can take place. Either David's son reigns, and he dies, and his 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 son reigns, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, forever. Or the only other option is that you have one king who sits on the throne, and he reigns forever. His reign never ends. Those are the only two options you have. And what we know from the history, we know from the Bible that the first option didn't happen, it failed. So then the kingdom that lasts forever, and the son who reigns on David's throne then, according to the author of Hebrews, is Jesus. He is the son. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. The son who would come from David's line. Jesus, as we've said from Matthew's gospel, his lineage goes right back to David, both Matthew and Luke. Jesus is the one who would sit on the throne of David, whose kingdom, 
whose kingdom has no, no end, it is everlasting, whose throne lasts forever. He is the son, the messianic heir. So his messianic heir, he inherits David's throne, he becomes the son, he is exalted and enthroned at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus has, as the son here, has a unique relationship with the father. No angel can claim to be called the son in this sense. At his baptism, the heavenly voice came and called him son. At his transfiguration, he was again called son. And his, and his final pronouncement as son was when God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the place that is above every other, to the highest place. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's higher than the angels. He is over everything that is made, both visible and invisible, angels included. That is who Jesus is as the Son. The author then moves on to consider two quotes that uh, contrast the relationship between the Son and the angels. He begins uh, with the introduction, verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says. Now, this takes a little bit of explaining. It's important to understand this little sentence to make sense of the quotes uh, that the author mentions. In what sense does the author here mean that Jesus is the firstborn? There are several uses of firstborn language to describe Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is described, uh, Colossians chapter 1, as the firstborn over all creation. In the same passage, he is the firstborn from the dead. And here the author uses it in the sense that we have seen in the sense of the son's exaltation, and the son's uh, reign over all. He is the firstborn from the dead, the first to come into the heavenly reality, the heavenly kingdom, as exalted son. And in that case, he is also, having taken up that place, firstborn over all creation. He is what Hebrews calls the heir, heir of all things. But also the word used for world here, when he brings his firstborn into the world. Now this is a in the book of Hebrews, this specific Greek word is used to denote the world to come. The world to come. That is the heavenly realm, whatever you precisely want to call it. Jesus is the firstborn as he exalted into the highest place. That is the world to come. The heavenly Zion. Over the earthly, over a heavenly kingdom. So as the firstborn, the author then goes on to say, as the firstborn who's brought into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. As the firstborn ruler over all things, who is exalted over all creation, the son is then not subordinate in any sense to the angels. Rather, they are to worship him. Jesus is superior because he is the firstborn son. The exact quote here um, let all God's angels worship him. It's slightly problematic. Uh, most commentators suggest that this is a quotation from, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, as part of the Song of Moses. Moses' song, of course, celebrates 
uh, Yahweh's uh, deliverance of his people from uh, bondage in Egypt and bringing them into, uh, about to enter in, into the, the promised land. If you go to Deuteronomy 32, 43, you will find that the line that the author quotes isn't actually there in our text of Deuteronomy. Uh, if your Bible has footnotes, you will see it come up there. For the author quotes from uh, what was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures at the time, what is known as the Septuagint, if you're academic and want to know all that kind of stuff. Uh, the abbreviated form of it is LXX. If you see LXX, that means Greek Old Testament Scriptures, Greek, tra- Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, the other option is that the author here is quoting from the Greek translation of Psalm 97, verse 7, where the psalmist says, Worship him, all you gods. Now, it wasn't uncommon uh, in Old Testament language to, refer to, to have angels referred to as gods with a, with a small g. Um, the Greek version of the psalm uses that interpretation. Whatever the precise quote the author has in mind, and either here are possible, both are calls for the angels to worship Yahweh. Angels are called to worship the Lord. And the author here interprets this call, a call to worship Yahweh, as a call to worship Jesus, as a call to worship the firstborn son. So as the firstborn son, as the exalted heir, who's enthroned at the highest place, angels worship him. Again, the author has proved once more. And if you're noticing this being very repetitive, I'm sorry, that's the way it is. He's hammering home his point. He has proven again, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to the angels. The next three quotes let me deal with more briefly before we go on to the last one. In verse 7, the author uh, again compares the son with the angels, quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4, again using the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uh, which interprets the text as being about angels. The main point of the quote is that whereas the son is a messianic heir, an exalted one, angels are just servants, servants of God who do his bidding. So the son, who is then superior in the grand order of things in the universe, he is in the highest place where the angels are servants under him. In verses uh, 8 and 9, the author again focuses on the Son, but this time in order to show uh, the contrast, uh, show a contrast with the last quotation. For this time, the Son is referred to as God who reigns forever, whose reign is with righteousness and with justice. Quote here comes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. The angels are messengers. But the Son is the one who reigns over all of creation, and he does justice. He reigns with justice and with righteousness. That is what he does. The Son's kingdom is God's kingdom, and the exercise of his rule is a benevolent and a just one, a good one. The angels don't rule. They don't exercise this kind of justice or authority. God, uh, God has never said this only Never said this of angels. He has only said it of the Son. The next, uh, the next in verses uh, 10 through 12, the author quotes from Psalm 102, again regarding the Son. This time he is concerned with the eternity 
of the Son and his absolute uh, permanence compared to that of angels who are part of a changeable creation. The Son creates and the Son has no end. But the creation itself and the angels, which are a piece of that creation, will be rolled up like a garment. The created world, however permanent it might look, is only temporary compared to the eternity of the Son. Angels are only part of creation. The Son is the unchanging one. Again, Son is superior to angels. Have you got it yet? Finally then, in verse 13, the author cites Psalm 110. The psalm we sung, verse 1, which is, of course, a very important messianic text. Jesus himself uses this uh, when he is challenged by the Pharisees during his own ministry. And this This psalm, Psalm 110, will play a very, very big part in the thinking of the author of Hebrews. It was there in the background in most of this letter. The understanding of the Messiah will form the backdrop, or this understanding from this psalm will form the backdrop to everything that he says, really. The same Lord, who is mentioned in verse 1, is, according to the author, the Son, as he is being described. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is David, That is David, sorry, speaking about the Messiah. Uh, And this is what he says concerning this this Messiah. This is what Yahweh says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The author to the Hebrews is saying that the one to whom David calls Lord is the very son through whom God has spoken in the last days. The one who he exalted to the right hand of God. Remember back to verse 3. See how this all fits together. He is exalted as king ruler over all things until his enemies are humbled and brought under him. So the son here, king ruler of all things, his might and his power go out from heavenly Zion to subdue his enemies and to bring them into submission. Interestingly enough, and again, Look at verse 3. uh, Look at verse 3 in Hebrews 1, but also keep in mind the psalm. Uh, The son here is, yes, king and ruler of all things, but he is also a king priest in the psalm. A priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now again, remember verse 3. The son, Jesus, is not only exalted ruler in the place of supreme glory and honor, but he is also the priest whose priesthood, whose intercession, doesn't have an end. The Son, as heir of all things, is exalted, and he is priest forever, making intercession for his people, as he is exalted to that highest place. This, again, will be a major part of the argument in the next nine chapters of this book. So the author has proved, in a sense, and I hope you see it, beyond any doubt... That Jesus is superior to the angels. No angel has ever been seated at the right hand of God. Far from it. He says angels in verse 14 are ministering spirits. They are ministering spirits sent out by the Son to serve those who will inherit salvation. That is the church. Angels serve the church. Angels serve God's people. Christ is the great head of all things, the head of the church, and he is head over angels. So God has spoken in the Son. 
in the last days. The son is a messianic heir, ruler who is now exalted to the supreme and the highest place. He has the name that is above every name, and he rules and he reigns from that heavenly throne over all his people, over his entire kingdom, as the Psalm 110 says, until his enemies at the last are judged and brought into submission to him when he comes again. Jesus is better than the angels. No matter how important they are, Jesus is better. He brings us a better word than the angels did. Now, if all that is correct, and I hope you will see that it is, what does it mean? Let me put it this way. First of all, anyway, if angels are commanded to worship the Son, who is at the right hand of the Father, if angels are ruled and commanded by him, how much more we, Christ's own people, how much more do we need to worship the Son? The Son who is messianic heir over all things, the great head of the church who has made purification for our sins, who is the great high priest who intercedes for us, how much more do we owe the Son our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship? As we read in Revelation at the beginning, as the angels worshipped around the throne, how much more should we? We who have benefited from all that the Son has done. How much more do we need to offer our lives as living sacrifices to worship the Son? Jesus here uh, is not the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus here is still less the Jesus of what the Jews would say or what Islam would say. He is the Son. And I think that shows us the other thing we need to see, that he is unique as the Son. As the word of God spoken in these last days, as heir, as ruler over all creation, Jesus is unique. Not simply as a prophet, as a teacher, but as the Son. The Son who reveals the Father. So Christianity, by definition, is the only way people are going to find the Creator. Christianity, then, is true in an ultimate sense. It's not true if you believe it. It is absolutely true. There is no way to get to God without coming through the Son. And the Son is supreme. Any attempt to equate Christianity with Hinduism with Buddhism or with anything else, it's all nonsense. These things are not all leading to the same place because they don't point you to the Son. And it is a fundamental lie and nonsense that all religions are the same. Christianity is unique because Jesus is the Son. And it is only through him and by him that you will get to the Father. Because Jesus is the, the son that excludes all other religions, all other philosophies that lay claim to us, there is no way to the Father but through him. There's no way that the Father can be revealed but by the Son, because that is the way through whom the, or by whom the Father has chosen to speak in these last days. And finally, let me say this. What I quoted at the beginning from uh, Diana Cooper from that uh, 
nonsense about angels and things. There is, in a sense, a New Age movement that is going on that wants to connect with what is spiritual, that wants to find out more than is just more than just the material that is fed up with our scientific skepticism which says only what is created is real and there's nothing beyond it there is a sense in which people want spirituality and so you get a whole load of these things looking for angels and looking for guardians and all this kind of thing but it's all silly Diana Cooper might think that she's in contact with angels but if those angels aren't turning around and telling her worship the sun Because it's only the sun that will give you life. It's only the sun that will give you what you need. Then it has to be wrong. It has to be false. Let me say it as plainly as I can. There is no spirituality without Jesus. If you want to connect with the divine, Jesus is the way. Repent and believe. The New Age movement, people want to have spirituality. Here is your spirituality. God has spoken in the last days. He has spoken by his son. Listen. These people are trying to find something that they will never find in all this via angels or anything else. What they need is that they need to be pointed to the Son because the Son is the one who is over all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came. We thank you that he rose from the dead. You you rose him up, that you exalted him to your right hand, that he now reigns and rules over all. He has the name which is over every name. His throne endures forever and ever. It will have no end. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that he is the great high priest whose sacrifice for our sins has purchased us for God, who's purchased our redemption, and whose intercession now allows us to enter your throne of grace and to find mercy in time of need. Lord, help us to point those who are searching to Jesus. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to listen to what you have spoken to us in him in the gospel. For Lord, there is no other way we can come to you. There is no other way we can find the longing of our hearts for what is spiritual, for what is eternal. There is no other way we can know you but through him. Help us, Lord, to look to Jesus, to rest in his grace, and to find assurance in him alone, in him whose name is over all. For we pray it all in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.